Hi guys, my name's Jason Mountford and this is The Hedge Podcast. Thank you for being with me today. This day's, this week's episode, the stuff I'm going to be going over today has come off the back of some discussion in the Discord group. So if you're not subscribed to The Hedge newsletter, this is the kind of stuff uh, that you get an insight to. Like I said before, the newsletter, the email, weekly email is kind of the hub of all the content going forward for The Hedge. And one of the things that I threw out there a few weeks back was an invite to a, a community, right? I've said before, I want this to be an interactive um, an interactive situation. I don't want it to just be me talking out to nobody and getting no feedback and not knowing exactly what it is that you guys are after. So um, there's been quite a few people that have joined the Discord uh, and there's some cool conversations that go on in there. People ask questions about what's going on. Uh, there's been some great feedback, great suggestions for what I could talk about on the show. And it's also a really good place for me to throw ideas out there and see, see what might work. Um, for example, just this week, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about is um, sort of over the next couple of months, maybe increasing the frequency of the podcast, maybe moving to uh, a, a, even a daily one where I just cover some, some short snippets about news and what's been going on uh, in the world of investing and, and personal finance, in addition to the kind of slightly longer form episodes where I sometimes get guests on and that sort of thing. So at the moment, it's probably not the direction I'm going to head, but again, it's great to get feedback. And that way, if you guys are involved in that conversation, you're going to get content that is more tailored to what what you want, what you're after. So I put the link in the show notes, definitely jump over to, to that group. Um, but one of the questions that has, one of the, the ideas that I got was from Dan and he suggested um, breaking down some of the te- uh, terminology that's used in investment funds. So talking about um, really a lot of the stuff that's like on a fun fact sheet, right? If you've ever seen those, um, every, every investment fund ETF has to put these out, uh, provides a rundown of what the fund invests in, um, a whole bunch of different investment information, cost charges, that sort of thing. But a lot of it is is jargony. It's not uh, it's not obvious. I mean, you can go and Google each individual term. Of course, you could. Um, but again, even some of those uh, explanations aren't broken down in in simple and easy to understand language. So that is what I'm going to do today. Today, I've brought up a, a fun fact sheet. I'm using Vanguard just because it's easy, it's simple. Everybody knows who they are, what they do. And I'm going to be walking you guys through uh, some of the terminology that is on there, as well as a couple of extra terms that were dropped in the Discord chat um, that Dan wanted me to to clarify. So the fund, I'm just going to jump, jump straight in, right? I'm just going to get into it. Um, the fund that I'm going to be talking about today is the Vanguard Life Strategy 80% Equity Fund. Like I say, just an example, a random example that I've picked um, to, to talk through. So... I'm using the online fund fact sheet, so it's literally just the website, the the Vanguard investor website, and the uh, the life strategy, eighty uh, percent equity fund. Um, it's got all the same information as the PDF fund fact sheets that you get. A lot of this information will be the vast majority of this information is is a requirement. It's a legislative requirement for them to to disclose it. So most fund fact sheets will have the same sort of information. It doesn't matter if it's an index investment, a passive investment, um, a UK fund, uh, an overseas fund, a bond fund, a property fund. They all have to provide this information to investors. And the idea is that for people like you and me, it means we can see all the details of the fund uh, or the ETF, and it can help m- us make decisions on whether we want to invest in it. We can compare a couple of funds side by side. We can see 
the cost and charges side by side. We can see the asset allocation side by side, all, all that sort of stuff. So to start with, the very first thing at the, at the top of this uh, at the top of this fact sheet is accumulation versus income. And that was one of the questions that Dan had, and it's a really good question. So the vast majority, well, a lot of funds, not all of them, but a lot of funds will give you the option to invest in accumulation units or income units. Now, it's, it's really straightforward. Accumulation reinvests any dividends back into the fund automatically, and you don't have the option to withdraw the income. An income fund pays them out to you, and you don't have the option to reinvest them. So in this example, we've got a, a fund that has 80% invested into the stock market and 20% into the bond market. There's going to be income from that. There's going to be interest payments that come from the bonds. There's going to be dividend payments that come from the shares. Really simply, if you have an accumulation, if you if you invested in the accumulation option, those dividends, you never see them. They go back into the fund to purchase more equity or more bonds. The idea with that, it will grow more over the long term because you've got that snowball compounding effect. Um, so if you're investing for a long period of time, if you don't think you need money out of the portfolio, it makes heaps of sense to do it that way. Income units pay out all those dividends and pay out all that interest. Now, I think it's pretty stupid most times to to uh, to invest in that one because just because you're in the accumulation uh, option doesn't mean you can't take money out from the portfolio. You can. You can sell down at any time. Um now that's going to potentially trigger capital gains tax, so that would be one thing to consider. Um, but yeah, income units basically just pays them out to you. It pays them out to a bank account. You can normally have them paid out to like an internal platform account. So if you're investing with Vanguard, there'll be a cash account. It will pay it out to that. Uh, if you invest with like Hargreaves Lansdowne or a different trading app or whatever, that it will pay into the into the cash account um, automatically. It doesn't mean you can't reinvest that money yourself. You can, obviously, you can take that cash as it builds up, put it into back into the fund or put it into something different. But that's effectively how that works. The next sections that are on here are fairly straightforward. So we've got ongoing charges. That's pretty obvious. Um, the This one's 0.22%. They can range from anywhere from 0.05% up to 2 or 3% if you're using some niche or, or unusual funds. Um the asset allocation, again, this one's pretty straightforward. It's just 80% equity and 20% bonds. Sometimes it'll be a lot more detailed than that. Some funds will give you the breakdown of the, uh, well, they, they do give you the breakdown, not some funds, all funds will give you the breakdown of the um, geography of that. So the Vanguard one gives gives us that information. So we can see that 19.2% is in, um, uh, actually, no, that's the breakdown of the, the different funds. But you can get the breakdown of the, uh, of the like geography, so how much is invested in the US market, how much is invested in the UK market, the Brazilian market, all that kind of stuff. And that can be pretty useful, uh, number one, for the level of risk in the portfolio, so how much is invested in different, into the into stock markets, how much is invested in the bonds, uh, but also pretty useful if you're trying to match up different funds across your portfolio. So if you've got uh, three different multi-asset funds and they're all heavily overweight in the UK market, that means overall your portfolio will be heavily overweight in the UK market. Um, so it's good to kind of match up those and make sure that they align with your investment strategy because if you're thinking that it's just generally a general you know, equity fund, you might not realize just how much is in a, one particular country uh, across those different funds. So that's definitely worth, worth having a look at. 
risk level. So risk level, this one gives a five out of seven. Um, that's a little bit misleading because that's just risk level based on how much is invested into the equity market. So without going too much into the weeds with this, this is one of the big problems with our industry uh, is that effectively stock is considered risky and bonds, fixed interest, everything like that is considered not risky. In reality, I think that's incorrect. You know, if you invest in um, blue, large blue chip companies um, like Amazon, like Shell, like Apple, Microsoft, all those companies, I don't think that that is very risky, especially long term. It'll fluctuate, can be volatile, definitely, but there's not that much inherent risk in those companies. If you invested in a 100% equity portfolio that was made up of companies like that, it would be considered a high risk portfolio. On the other hand, if you invested into a 100% bond portfolio, that would be considered a very safe portfolio. It would be a low risk. Now, what happens if those bonds are like Venezuelan government bonds and Johnny's Backyard Garage Services corporate bonds? The their regulator doesn't really give a shit. They're going to say, well, it's a bond fund, it's safe. Where it's just, it's just not, you know. Johnny's Backyard Garage Services could definitely default on that bond and not pay back the money. Venezuela have defaulted on bonds before. So that's just something to be aware of, that risk on these sheets is based on the asset allocation, not necessarily the risk of the underlying holdings. So again, worth looking at. There's not going to be a massive issue for big mainstream funds. You know, they're not going to invest in Johnny's Backyard Garage Services. They're going to invest in blue chip bonds, safe corporate, uh, safe government debt. But if you're starting to get into the weeds a little bit with some unusual funds or some niche funds, definitely look a layer below and see, okay, there's 50% of this fund invested in the bond market. What's it actually invested in? What are the holdings? What are the top holdings on there? Do I know those companies? Do I feel like those companies are safe and secure? Okay, next thing, net asset value or NAV price. Now, this is an interesting one. This is effectively the uh, the per unit value of the underlying assets. So, um, right now for this fund, they're basically, where, where's the price? Okay, it's not really an issue for this one because it's an index fund. But the net asset value is the, value of the underlying uh, the underlying the value of the underlying investments so this can be something worth paying attention to again if you're looking at slightly more niche things it's not going to matter for a fund like this it's not going to matter for a large um, uh, for, for most large uh, large cap kind of broad spectrum investment funds where it can be interesting is things like property funds so for example the way that property funds work is that they have their 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 properties revalued on a regular basis so i'm just going to keep this give a really simple example so let's say there's a fund that has one single property in it worth a million pounds and there's a million shares on issue or a million units of the fund on issue for that fund that means that every unit is worth one pound right so there's every share of the fund or every one unit, however you want to say it, is worth a pound because the asset is worth a million pounds and there's a million units uh, on issue or shares on issue, right? Really straightforward. Now, the units, uh, the price of that will, will change as the, you know, the, just the same as usual. If it's a, if it's an ETF, the, the price of that will change based on, um, you know, demand for the, for the holdings and, you know, average current. Uh, sale price and all that sort of stuff. Now, 
the difference with the net asset value is that sometimes the the price that a uh, investment fund is trading for, an ETF is trading for, can be different than the, the net asset value. So, for example, in 2008, again, I'm going, I'm going back a while, but that's a really good example where you know properties aren't revalued every day. So, you can have a situation where there's a big crash in the property market, but that one million pound unit, or sorry, that one million pound property hasn't been revalued. There's not been a official valuer come around and look at the details, look at the state of the property market and provide a current up-to-date valuation. So what can happen is actually the market makes that decision. The market knows that the property market is going down. So it might be that actually investment, uh, you know, the investment markets don't price those u- those units at a uh, one pound each anymore. They might say, you know what, we think the property market's actually dropped 20%. Um, so I don't think that that property is worth a million quid anymore. I think it's worth eight, uh, 800,000 pounds. And therefore, the most I'm going to pay for a unit in this ETF is going to be ADP. The net asset value of that fund will still be a million pounds because there hasn't been a, a revaluation of the of the property. So sometimes you get these unusual things happen where the underlying value of the assets that the company holds is different to the 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 price that, that it is going for. And normally or often that can be a clue that there's something not quite right in the pricing of the assets. Another example just recently um, is I don't know if you guys have seen this is AMTT AMTD Digital, which is a um, which is a like a it's been like a bit of a meme stock thing that's going been going been going around listed in America, um, kind of dodgy. But anyway, if, think of it as a meme meme stock, right? You can you can Google it and find out more information if you want. But it's not the story's not that interesting. Um, so AMTD Digital is a was a meme stock. The price went crazy, so it became like the 15th most valuable company in the world, even though it's like a small company based out of Singapore. Um, And it was worth like $450 billion US dollars at one point. Now, the company, there's another company that owns 88% of AMTD Digital called AMTD Idea. I hope I'm not losing you so far. Effectively, you've got AMTD Idea, which owns 88% of AMTT Digital. AMTT Digital was worth 450 billion apparently, and yet AMTD Idea was only worth like five billion. So the net asset value for AMTD Idea would have been, you know, over 450 billion because they own assets that are supposedly worth that amount of money, including that AMTD Digital. But the the price that um, the price that AMTD idea was trading for was obviously significantly lower than that because it's some weird um, kind of mispricing bullshit that was going on. So it kind of, there's a couple of examples of, of how um, net asset value can sometimes be different to the actual trading value of a company. Sometimes there's going to be a good reason for it. Sometimes it doesn't really matter. But every now and then, it's something that can be taken advantage of from an investment standpoint. Okay, so running down this list now, so we've got um, entry charge, pretty obvious if there's a fee uh, to start the fund or open the, or invest in the fund or the ETF. Exit charge, same thing. Most of the time, there's not going to be those uh, anymore. Um, dealing date, dealing deadline. Again, it's not that important. It's just the date. If you make a trade or you request a trade out of the fund or into the fund, um, the deadline 
on whether it will happen today or tomorrow. You've got the investment structure. I'm not going to go into the detail of that. There's a number of different ways that investment funds can be structured. There's investment trusts. There's open-ended open investment companies. Look, it's it doesn't really matter. So you don't need to worry too much about that. There's slightly different ways that they have to report their information, ways that they can accept new money, that sort of thing. But from an investment from for from your perspective, from my perspective, I don't really care about that. I don't think it doesn't make any any real difference to to how you invest in, in something. Um, benchmark. So benchmark, uh, you may have already heard this term before, but benchmark is just essentially the um, it's self-selected. So the fund chooses it. The, the benchmark themselves, and it, it effectively bundles them into a, uh, uh, a range of, well, let me start that again. It's the way the fund manager has decided to measure success. So if you have a company that invests in the UK market, let's say large cap, you know, Jason's large cap UK fund, that means I'm going to invest in just large UK companies. I'd probably choose the FTSE 100 as my benchmark for that. That's the average kind of, or maybe the FTSE all share. But I'm going to share, I'm going to choose kind of um, an index that tracks the UK market. Um, no, sorry, it would be the FTSE 100 because I said large cap. So um, it's kind of a, when investors are looking at potentially investing in my fund, they can see that I'm investing in large cap UK equities. The market on average, the FTSE 100, has provided 12% um, over the last two years. And I can stack up my fund against that. So I can say, you know, whether whether I've outperformed that, whether I've underperformed that, and it gives investors a bit of an idea as to how they can uh, how they can measure. Now, there's loads of different benchmarks. There's benchmarks for different industries. There's benchmarks for different countries. There's been benchmarks for multi-asset funds. So if you invest 50% equity or 100% equity or anywhere in between. So um, the only reason why this is worth keeping an eye on for you is if you're considering investing in a fund based on the performance over benchmark. So one area where I really see this come up a lot for me, and it can be a little bit misleading, is that some of the benchmarks have really wide ranges of the equity component. So there might be a fund, so there's a number of benchmarks from the Investment Association that are, say, for funds that invest between 30 and 60% in the stock market. So any fund that invests between 30 and 60% in the stock market can use that as a benchmark. Now, if I invest 60% in the stock market on the dot and I always invest that amount or you know within a few percentage points, it's given me a pretty big head start over that benchmark because that average return that that benchmark is going to show is also going to include funds that are investing only 30% in the stock market. And so that's not a problem, but it's just worth keeping keeping in mind if you're looking at a fund that invests towards the upper end you look at the chart right you go on your you know whichever website you use you go to the chart and you think shit that's not actually very fucking well that's really outperformed the market or the average or the benchmark that's great it might be but just check the asset allocation and see how that compares to the benchmark um and you know weigh that up against some of the other funds that you're that you're you're having a look at um right so just a couple of other points that were raised by Dan that I think is definitely worth uh, worth talking through. So different sectors. So asset allocation is is pretty self-explanatory when you're talking about like the macro view. So it does it invest in the UK market, the US market, the um, 
Australian market, whatever. That that's pretty straightforward. Does it invest in stocks? Does it invest in bonds? Does it invest in property? You know that that kind of makes sense to most people. Um, but below that is the the kind of breakdown of the different uh, the different um, sectors. So to talk through this one, I'm actually going to use a jump over to a different fact sheet because that one from Vanguard's not doesn't really do it very well. Um, so I'm just using now the iShares Core MSCI World ETF. Um, so on this one, on the second page, uh, it goes into sector breakdown. So again, these are these are available for every every stock market all over the world. They um, bunch companies into the various different sectors. So some of them are, are pretty straightforward. Um, some of them are a bit less obvious. So information technology. That's pretty straightforward, right? That's going to be companies like Apple, like Facebook, like um, uh, like Microsoft, all those all those sorts of companies. Healthcare again, pretty straightforward. Financials. Some of them are a little more um, unusual. So just consumer discretionary. That's just discretionary spending. Um, so it's companies that uh, make things that people buy but don't have to buy, right? So it's often things like um, can be fast moving. What's it, what, what's FM? CG, uh, not that's not the right term I'm looking for. It's like uh, luxury brands, that sort of thing. Um, you know, spending on things like entertainment, um, cinema, those kind of things. So, um, you then got industrials, consumer staples. Industrials is like manufacturing. It's kind of um, you know companies that make uh, motor vehicles, those sorts of things. Military contractors, communication, energy materials, etc. Now, all these really, um, again, it's. Some we it, it's getting into detail. You don't have to get into if you're not interested in, but they have characteristics, right? So the certain there's certain industries that are going to perform better during certain parts of the market cycle compared to others. Uh, there are certain parts, certain sectors that are more um, resistant to things like recessions. Uh, there's certain sectors that perform better in bull markets that perform better in high inflation. Um, you know all those sorts of things, basically. Um, so, you know, you can definitely Google the definitions of these if you want to get really into the detail of it. But you know, you don't have to don't have to really worry about it too much um, because it's not going to impact your your investment choices if the overall fund matches what you're trying to do. Because at the end of the day, when you're investing in a fund or investing in an ETF, you're kind of you're paying the manager, the fund manager, a fee to worry about that kind of stuff for you. Having said that, you know, if you do want to invest in sector-specific ETFs or funds, you know, you can do that. There are funds that specialize in all of those those different sectors. There are funds that invest only in consumer staples. There are funds that invest in only energy stocks, only IT. So I would suggest if you're if you're wanting to get really specific about that, that would be the way to do it. Again, then you've got the fund manager taking care of the underlying positions for you, but you're still getting the exposure to the sector that you want. So the last terminology, I think I've covered most of the, the major stuff that's on these fact sheets. Now, there's other things like the top holding percentages, the performance, but that's pretty straightforward. I'm sure most of you understand kind of what you're looking at when you're looking at those. Um, the last thing really that I just wanted to to talk through, which again is something else that, um, that was suggested on the Discord group, was uh, what does it mean for something to be hedged, GBP hedged? Um, and really when you're investing, the way this works is when you're investing in an asset class that is overseas, you are investing, you have to invest in the overseas currency. So, you know, if I want to invest in Apple stock, I can't buy that with with pounds. 
I mean, I can, like practically speaking, I can, but actually what happens behind the scenes is that the, um, the, the, the pounds that I put on my trading platform here in the UK gets converted to US dollars in order for that to be transacted on the New York Stock Exchange. Same as if you wanted to buy a property, a house, a flat in New York. You know, you could, if you rock up with, with British pounds in a, in a suitcase, they're not going to accept that. You know, you make a transfer from your bank to the bank in New York, but in between that, the currency gets converted. So you can't actually buy something in the US with pounds, really. Now, the issue that you have with that is that that means that the asset that you're now holding is valued in 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 British in uh, sorry in US dollars, and so not only are you invest taking risk on the underlying asset, so you're taking the risk in Apple stock, you're also taking the risk with the currency because the Apple stock is priced in US dollars. So hypothetically, you could get a situation where your investment loses money, even though. Uh, in British pounds terms, even though the actual underlying asset has gone up, if you've lost money on the, the currency. Same can happen the other way. You could lose money on the actual underlying investments, but you could end up making money because the value of the currency changes. So really simply, you know, let's say you've got an asset that is worth £100, um, some stock that's worth £100, and the pound and the US dollar are like for like one to one, right? Just to make the, the maths really, really simple. So your £100 asset is also worth 100 US dollars. Now, that asset could stay worth exactly the same. It could be worth, you know, come back in a year's time, the asset could still be worth 100 US dollars. It's not change in value in America. But if the US dollar has gone up to, let's say it's now $1.10 for every British pound, then it means that the, um, it means that you've made money on that asset. You've made 10% in return on that asset purely through the currency change. So when you go to transfer your, your money back from GBP, sorry, I've said that the wrong way around. You've gone down in that case. So your pound buys you, uh, buys you less US dollars. The point is, is it's the currency fluctuation that has changed how much money you end up if you get the money back in pounds rather than the underlying asset. Now, going back to the original question, hedging hedges out that risk. So different, uh, there's lots of different ways that you can do this based on uh, what the actual underlying hedge you're trying to, what you're trying to hedge against. But if you're hedging against currency, um, then sometimes funds will basically buy derivatives and buy um, things like options and futures on the currency to offset any gain or loss from the currency. So it means that if you're investing in a different country, your return will be based on the underlying asset and the currency fluctuations will be equalized out. So that's uh, what that means if you see that on a on an investment fund. Right, guys, that is the episode for this week. Thanks very much for, for joining me. Um, always good to have content that I know at least somebody is looking for um, so on that Discord group. Answered a few questions there, which, uh, which hopefully is useful. If you're not signed up for the newsletter, that's where a lot of this stuff is coming from. That's where you're going to get first dibs on new information, first, first call of the new things that I'm doing. Um, I try to make it fun and interesting, right? So the, the tagline for the newsletter is business and investing news or UK business and investing news that is not boring AF. My point is to try and entertain you and inform you at the same time. I'm better at that when I'm writing than I am at speaking. Um, so I like to throw in a few memes and a few uh, a few interesting things that will hopefully put a smile on your face as well as informing you. If you want to do that, 
best way is just head, head over to the website link is always in the show notes but it's thehedge.io and as always if you have any questions and you want to get in touch with me for anything to for me to discuss on the podcast same place go to thehedge.io and drop me a line on there thanks as always guys for joining me and i look forward to catching you on the next episode